Welcome back to Balagan. I'm Kobe Cohen. Harabait, or Temple Mount, is sacred to both Jews and Muslims. For Jews, it is the peak of Mount Moriah, where the first and second temples were built, while for Muslims, it is known for the mosques of Al-Aqsa and Tomb of the Rock, and where, based on Muslim belief, Christ Muhammad's ascent to heaven. For years, the Temple Mount serves not only as a holy place, but also as a source of tension and ongoing clashes over religion and control. Who is fighting, and what are they fighting for? For answering these questions, I am glad to host Dr. Harel Chorev, head of the Middle Eastern Network Analysis Desk at Tel Aviv University, and author of Networks of Power in Palestine, Family, Society, and Politics Since the 19th Century. Welcome, Arel, to Balagan. So what can you tell us about Temple Mount? I mean, let's go with the short history of the place. Short history of the Temple Mount is... It's well, hard. <laughs> uh, it's hard. Well, it was established, of course, on the Mount Moriah. We usually refer to, I mean, in Jewish context, we refer to two periods before Christ. Uh, one is the first temple and then the second temple. Both were ruined by conquerors of the country. The first uh, were the Babylons and the second were the Romans. And the mountain and the temple on it were uh, at the ruins until the seventh uh, century. Until the seventh century with the rise of Islam. It is traditional to say, although Evidently, I mean, in historically wise, we cannot be really, really sure about it, that one of uh, the Khalif, I think it was the second Khalif, uh, Omar ibn al-Khattab, uh, was the one to decide, the conqueror of Jerusalem and of Israel, or Palestine, as the Roman they called it later, only later, by the way, then it was still Eretz Israel, uh, to, to the Jews. So Omar ibn al-Khattab, the Khalif, decided to establish on that mountain Al-Aqsa, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, really close to the rock. The rock, which was sacred to the Jews as well, but then was appropriated by the Muslims as well as a holy site. And later on, they established the Dome of the Rock over that uh, holy rock. That rock was the place, according to a Jewish uh, tradition, that was the place where Abraham intended to sacrifice, to sacrifice his son, uh, Isaac, and other traditions yeah. that were tied into this specific uh, place. Now, so... And for the Muslims, it's the place where, based on their belief, if I remember correctly, Prophet Muhammad, right? Yeah. Um, left Al-Burak and went up yes. to heaven. Yeah. Right, it's a holy descendant to heaven on his uh, magical beast, El Burak. Therefore, they're calling the Wailing Wall today uh, El Burak. Although the place of the Wailing Wall or El Burak has changed through uh, the periods, it it used to be archaeologists uh, believe it was still first in the uh, southern part of the Temple Mount, then moved to the southern western corner, and only in the 19th century moved or they decided it's actually the place of the Wailing Wall where Jews traditionally prayed and worship as the only remaining of their uh, temple. 
Now, it became a focal point of stress and frictions, particularly after 1928, because it became both a religious and a Zionist symbol, the, the Wailing Wall. And the frictions grew up with the Arabs also because of who was leading the Arabs back then, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was both, I would say, a fundamentalist, someone who we would call today a fundamentalist, an Islamist, both uh, a nationalist. By the way, he started as a pan-Arab nationalist, and only after the defeat of King Faisal in July 1920, he moved to focus on Palestine, okay? But that's a different story. Anyway, in 1928, uh, those frictions between Muslims and Jews around the El-Burak or Wailing Wall issue grew up. It started uh, because of something that was considered as a breakdown of the, the status quo that was customary uh, until then, which is in uh, Yom Kippur, September probably, 1928, the Jews placed a barrier between women and men as they do in their synagogues. Now, usually they were not supposed to put anything in the Wailing Wall, which belonged to the Waqf. It was a Jewish site, but it was so customary that, that Jews are praying there that all the rulers of, of Palestine, from the Ottomans to the British, said, okay, it belongs to the Waqf, to the Islamic Endowment uh, uh, Administration, but Jews can pray there to pray there, but without putting any, any sign of anything which is, that will stay there, anything that either chairs or those barriers or anything that will make it, for example, a synagogue, okay? Now, during Yom Kippur 1928, they placed that barrier and a policeman there came up and he broke it down and he beat it up, a British officer, and he beat it up the prayers and it created a lot of noise, not only in in Palestine, but all over the world, including the US and Europe, and, and created a lot of fuss. And the Muslims, or I would say the Supreme Muslim Council, which was the main body of, uh, of administrating the Waqf and other religious uh, sites in Palestine, used it as a leverage to both strengthen the position of the leader of Haj Amin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti, who was also the president of the Supreme Muslim Council. So to strengthen his position, but also to leverage it in order to say, look, the, the Temple Mountain, not only the Wailing Wall, the Temple Mountain is in danger. The Jews are planning to take it over and they are doing all kinds of provocations and, and stuff like that. Sounds familiar, isn't Sounds it? Sounds familiar uh, to these days. <laughs> Indeed it is. So you're saying it's an old trick that still it's works. It's a very old trick, but I think the copyrights on it belong to uh, Hajamin al-Husseini. Al yeah. And he used it very, very effectively. Within that year, between September 1928 to August 1929, he used it very effectively to say that the Temple Mount is in danger. No matter what world jury said, 
and decided upon it and declaring that they had no ambitions regarding that site, which indeed used to be the, you know, the site of the Temple Mount, which we cannot forget because we Jews and we are saying every year, you know, we are mentioning the temple, but still we have no ambitions in changing that status quo. You know, it didn't do anything. It's amazing to see how the patterns of information hadn't changed since then, you know, despite of the, the uh, social media platforms and everything and media and everything, it doesn't matter. It still works in those closed echo chambers when someone is telling himself a certain story and is not willing to get any other kind of story. Anyway, in 1929, August 1929, the frictions around the Wailing Wall grew up with all kinds of things. You know, the, the Supreme Muslim uh, Council, for example, opened a wall there and marched all the, the animals through the Wailing Wall in order to humiliate the Jews and, of course, to disrupt their praying. On the other hand, Beitar, uh, the revisionist... The, the revisionist movement. Yeah, movement did their own provocations and marched, uh, you know, in a, in a provocative way. And, and, you know, they beat it up and, uh, you know, all together, not just Jews, but... So it really amounted. Now, in August 1929, after another prayer on Friday, people were incited, probably by Hajjamin al Husseini, but also other uh, Imams, as it happens today. Every Israeli know Fridays are notorious for their fragility in terms of the you know security in Jerusalem as a Jerusalemite. You you you, you of yeah. course know it very well. <laughs> And it's because of those ceremonies on the mountain, and it really depends on what the prayers yeah, fri are. Friday here. is the sacred day for Muslims, so that's their main... Yeah, uh, of course, this is the core reason yeah. of, of why people are congregating there, of course. So after that particular Friday in August 1929, Muslims erupted from the mountain, stormed the city, and clashes began. A few Muslims died, other killed uh, Jews, but the rumors, the rumors were lethal because rumors all over the country spread and claimed that Jews stormed the, the Temple Mount, Al-Aqsa, which and that was high, and they killed many Muslims. That was the rumor. It went all over the country and you see an eruption of uh, Riots and uh, massacres as well in Tzfat, in, uh, in Moza, terrible. Massacre, and also in Hebron, uh, the and famous... Course, uh, in, yeah, and the most the known famous one massacre. In, yeah, the massacre in Hebron a day after when the, the rumors arrived to the city, by the way, on a motorcycle. With, I really have that, you know, the document that was telling about this particular guy who came from Jerusalem on a motorcycle saying, hey, the Jews are killing our brothers and they stole the Temple Mount. And it ended up, as you know, in, in Hebron with the 66 people who were massacred, the men, children, women, terrible uh, event and uh, all over the country for a whole week, for a whole week. Now, after the 1929 uh, riots, uh, Haj Amin al-Husseini understood that he has a very, very powerful tool in his hand, which is Al-Aqsa. 
it, it was, believe it or not, it was not a, a self-obvious thing before that. He really needed to discover it. And he used it not only to strengthen the solidarity among Palestinians, Palestinians. but also among Muslims all over the world. He called up for a, a conference in Jerusalem for the protection of uh, Al-Aqsa. Yeah, people coming from... Uh, nothing has changed, you know. <laughs> so he And was a good politician. Also, hmm? He was a good politician. He, knew he was how a to... good politician, but I must say that at the bottom line, I think if a Palestinian look, is searching for one of the main leaders or reasons for their... Catastrophe in 1948, that yeah. would be definitely Haj Amin al-Husseini in the first. Oh, definitely. That's a topic for another episode. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> If I'm moving forward, then it was the British Mandate era. And then 1948 came, we had the War of Independence, but the old city of Jerusalem was taken by the Jordanians, actually. That is correct. was taken by the Jordanians after uh, fierce battles over the old city of Jerusalem, including, of course, the area of the Wailing Wall, including uh, Mount Olives, where all my grandparents are buried, by the way. Yeah, we have the, the story in the family of my great-grandmother going to the closest point in Mount Zion, well, looking towards... Look towards... Yeah, And crying because her husband was already buried there, but she couldn't reach that point, of course. So yeah, that was for 19 years, the Wailing Wall was not accessible to, to Jews. And after 67, the whole area was liberated, as I see it as, as, a, as a Zionist. And the area, the Brick Plaza that we see today in front of the Wailing Wall was built. on the ruins of the Mugrabi uh, neighborhood that yeah. was there, a small neighborhood, very old neighborhood that was torn down. And uh, this is what we have since then. Now in 1967, Moshe Dayan, the defense uh, minister of Israel, decided that indeed the whole area was annexed to Israel, okay, as its internal capital. But Moshe Dayan said, you, will take that Israeli flag that you put on Temple Mount, because we don't want to make any provocations, take it down, it's okay, we are the sovereigns on the mountain, but we don't want to make anyone, you know, furious about it. We want to create a certain status quo. So the status quo actually begins, as we call it today, begins only in 67, okay? Not before, not, it's not something ancient. And what was the status quo? The status quo, in short, was Jews are allowed to visit the mountain, but not to pray there, not to pray. Okay, this is forbidden. And if the police see a Jew praying there, praying. he can arrest him or usually just take him out of the, out of the mountain. Now, I must say this whole trend or this, this policy was backed up by also, a, and it's important, people usually don't talk about it, but it was also backed up by our religious decisions of the, the greatest... By the rabbinical institutions. Yeah, exactly. And chief rabbis in Israel who said, 
Jews should not visit the Temple Mount, okay? For religious reasons, okay? So, you know, this was the atmosphere. However, we both know that it changed ever since. And, and, and he also, what Moshe Dayan did is a part of the status quo. It's something that he actually left Temple Mount in the hands of the Waqf. Exactly, correct. He left the Temple Mount in the hands of the Waqf, the Jordanian Waqf, the, Jordanian. The, the, the administration of Muslim religious endowments. That is what we call Waqf or in plural, Awqaf. And uh, he left it to the Jordanians. Now, after 94, It was fortified by other agreements with the Jordanians, giving them the official position and respect to control the mountain. But we know that since, I would say, the 90s, the, the, the Al-Aqsa issue became a very, very delicate issue, both because of Muslims uh, saying, uh, that Jews are doing things that they're not supposed to do or because of provocations. For example, and one of the most known are the visit of Ariel Sharon oh, in October course. 2000 in the mountain, which- He was the head of opposition at that time. The head, the head of the yeah. position. It is a very you know, customary to say, I am loyal to, to Israel. I am loyal to the Temple Mount. I will visit there. I will exercise my right as, as sovereign on the mountain. Now, it blew up the whole thing. And I'm from those people who believe that if it was not Sharon, it was someone else because, you know, the, the fuel was already there. The barrel was full with the fuel and just yeah, waiting the, for the, that the, the environment was toxic from the beginning. Yeah. But Sharon did it for political purposes. I mean, he uh, was the, the Likud leader at that time, and he knew what the outcomes will probably be. He was a secular person. He never was a believer. But he had the best partner on the other side, which was Yasser Arafat, who came back frustrated from the Camp David uh, negotiations. And he decided to ignite the flames in the Middle East. So we found Because the best became, partner at that time. It, well, I, I mean, it was part of a picture. Okay? It was part of the picture. Uh, uh, it was, you know, the stroke who broke the camel's back. At the end of the day, from, from a historical perspective, as a historian, I, you know, we usually, yeah, okay, Sharon came there and it was definitely the event that ignited the whole thing. I didn't know if Sharon knew that it will ignite the whole thing. It's very hard to, I think he was asked about it and, You know, wh whatever we're going to say, if we believe him or not. Anyway, the circumstances, the context was, of course, much wider. And yeah. it's the failure of the uh, Camp David uh, negotiations and uh, Barack offered to, to Arafat. And uh, it sparked the whole barrel that, uh, of fuel that I've uh, described. Now, since the 90s, actually, it didn't start with the just Sharon uh, issue. We have in Israel a movement, which is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, which you have in the U.S. as well, which is quite developed there as well. And the, the Islamic movement in Israel is divided into two branches. One is the northern branch, which doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist. And the other one is for integration, uh, right. 
They believe in the same principles, okay? But still they are coming from different schools in terms of, okay, what should we do? What should be our policy? And as we know, the Southern branch is now part of the government basically. Now the Northern branch under the, the very charismatic leadership of uh, Sheikh Raid Salah from Umm al-Fakhim, led a very effective policy that basically adopted an exercise, Haj Amin al-Husseini's mandatory policy, very effective policy to use Al-Aqsa as a leverage to gain basically political capital, political capital to mobilize Israeli Arabs or Palestinian Israeli, uh, however you want to call them, and uh, to mobilize them and to say, look, there is a danger there. And not only that, but also by doing new things that we didn't see before. For example, not acknowledging or denying, actually, denying any Jewish historical right on the mountain. That is to say, no, you never had a temple on that mountain. You are lying about it. There is no archaeological findings uh, that is supporting that. Nothing. It's just lies and narratives. Now, of course, they know very well that this is a lie because there are so many findings from the Temple Mount. Even tiles, the tiles of the Temple Mount are, are there. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, they did a lot to, to uh, and this is really heartbreaking in terms, you know, from a, a archeological perspective because yeah. they, they ruined a lot of findings and hide them and, and grinded them and all kinds of things. But the average Israeli Arab is, if he is part of the, the uh, Northern branch institutions, for example, educational institutions or mosque networks, and they hear their preaching and, and everything, he believes that there was never such a thing as the Temple Mount. And another thing that he believes is that Al-Aqsa is in danger. Al-Aqsa fi al-Khattar in Arabic. Why? Because every year, whatever happens, and, and we need to remind people that not every year. I mean, in recent years, it's every year because, you know, everybody from Hamas to the northern uh, branch of the uh, Islamic movement know how effective it is to use Temple Mount if you want to ignite the atmosphere. They know very well how to ignite it by themselves. While on and, the other hand, we also have, on the Jewish side, a new movement called Tnuat Ne'emane Amikdash. Yes, that I, are, I will uh, refer to that. Of course. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of course. I'm just trying to be systematic in terms yeah, sure, of finding each side. So every year there is a Miharjan, namely a conference or a party of Al-Aqsa is in danger. Every year, whether it is in danger or not in danger. So, you know, people are indoctrinized that it is indeed in danger. And what are the claims? Claims is are the Jews are trying to change the status quo, trying to to get their hold or to strengthen their hold on the mountain. Now, from the Jewish perspective or the Jewish side, as you rightfully mentioned, we do have a great increase of people that, first of all, they don't listen or care about what the rabbinical judgment or rulings regarding the mountain and the fact that they prohibited it. They don't care about it. They call themselves 
the loyalists of Temple Mount, and they go regularly, many of them on a weekly basis, some of them even daily basis. And the most, uh, I would say, extreme ones are even trying to uh, sacrifice, you know, to renew the custom of sacrifice. sacrifice. They are marginal, I must say, but they are on the rise. Generally, the number of visitors on the mountains has changed during, I would say, three, four years. In the past three years, it multiplied itself by three. Okay, if, I don't know, 10,000 used to come every year, now it's 30,000 or something like that. And let's be honest, I mean, uh, if we put religious aside, it's a fascinating place to come and see. Extremely fascinating. And, uh, you know, so there is is other incentives. If we have for our listeners who think that people want to go and check the place out just out of religious aspects. No, it's it's an amazing place to visit. Amazing place, a lot of uh, architecture and art. Yes, and even if you're not a religious Jew, you know, you feel something when you're there. It's really moving because it's, you know, it's the core, it's the heart of Jewish history. And I I don't think it's even controversial to say that. We all know how central the temple was in old times for Jews and the three pilgrims every year and so on and so forth. And yeah, I, I was there. The only time I was there was during my officer course. When they brought us there, of course, from a very, uh, I would say, national point of view of, you know, connecting us of what uh, we're doing here in that, that country. So you have many motives. Some of them are national, some of them are, uh, you know, uh, just the interest. And many tourists, by the way, many, many tourists go there, both Arabs and non-Arabs and Christians. And so, you know, people may say, if you think of the number of visitors as a status quo, whatever it used to be, okay, the status quo is changed. But I don't think, essentially, that's the change of status quo. The change of status quo is all those people trying to prayer there and, and to conduct prayer there. And we must say that we have many of them, okay, that or, or many attempts Usually it's the same people, by the way, but many attempts, you know, to conduct a, a full prayer in Minyan, as we say, on the mountain. And, uh, but the police they, is stopping them. Usually the police is stopping them. We have a few cases that when they didn't stop. But, you know, I wouldn't say that something really, really changed. And anyway, and anyway, even if it changed, okay, let's take it as, as a fact. Okay, things has changed. We shouldn't think about this argument, okay, from the Muslim side, the Hamas side, right. or the northern flank of the uh, northern branch of uh, the uh, Muslim Islamic movement. movement as something which is being done on an, any essential basis. It's not. It's for political reasons. And the reasons are changing each time according to the circumstances. On May 2021, during the Guardian of the Wall, or before the Guardian of the Wall, it was about Hamas' clear motivation to undermine the West Bank. And that is being controlled by the Palestinian Authority and not uh, by Hamas. 
and not by Hamas exactly, under the control of the Palestinian Authority, which is the fierce rival and enemy of Hamas, and uh, following the cancellation of the election, the general election that were supposed to take place on May 21st and were canceled by the PA. So Hamas used the Temple Mountain to undermine the whole situation. It succeeded extremely within the Israeli context. We all saw the eruption of violence within the, the, uh, In the mixed cities, cities the, the mixed cities, correct? But it didn't succeed in the West Bank, okay? Despite of several attempts of usually Hamas-affiliated or members trying to ignite the situation, but it didn't succeed there. It succeeded very well in Israel. But even now, we see, after we really analyze the situation into deep, we see that the most important component among those rioters on the mountain is Israeli Arabs who belong to the northern branch of the, the outlawed, we should say the outlawed uh, Muslim uh, movement. The tip of the spear is uh, a group that usually dubbed as the Murabitun. Murabitun is a very jihadi term. It's a historical term of the people who lived in fortress along the lines of uh, Muslim uh, conquest and were so radical and, and, and committed to their goal that, that they were willing to do whatever it takes to, you know, to defend their new fortress, their new positions, and uh, to make sure that the jihad will proceed. So in this context, the murabitun, which are the men, and the murabitat, which is for the women, are playing the same kind of role. They are highly committed on religious ground to Al-Aqsa. They are declaring on their readiness to die as Shaheed for that mosque. And they are the one who you see doing all kinds of provocations for shooting firecrackers, piling um, a lot of stones to throw on the prayers on the wailing wall or on the policemen's. They are the one to ignite the whole thing, to, to blow it up. The number of women, for example, is something between 150 to 200, if you want to, to understand it in quantities. The men's are more. They are also being funded by the northern branch of the Islamic movement, something in between, I would say, $300 to $1,200 per month, with even a bonus. Uh, if you're really committed to that movement, you get a, another bonus of $100. So it's funded, it's, it's well-organized. Turkey is in the business as well, or at least used to be in the business. Israel Investors, yeah. Now it's trying to uh, renew the relationship with Israel. Yeah, for the rapprochement. So the, the whole thing is not spontaneous. It's not, you know, all those uh, youth who are frustrated for whatever it's well organized, it's well, the reason, and it's focused about gaining political gains. And I would say, yes, uh, provocations from the other side uh, do not help. For example, people who are, because of what is going on, they will go on the mountain, they will sacrifice uh, a sheep there or whatever. This doesn't help. And I think that actually this year, uh, mainly because 
most players in the political sphere understand that it's a political game and that the players have an interest, it's actually more, I would say, controlled than last year. I yeah. mean, if you're looking at what's happening within Israel, you can actually see you're talking about the North Branch, then the South Branch, which is a part of the coalition through the Ram Party, are actually trying to minimize the conflict. Yeah. While also the Israeli government is trying to be more moderate in its response and the way it handles things in the area. Yeah. So there are, yeah. there are other efforts. I mean, uh, you can definitely see from Hamas side that they're trying to push, you know, to put flames, while on the other hand, actually, other parties are trying to lower the level of flames. Yeah. Uh, Israel, at least for now, is successful in curbing this, uh, this uh, volatile, uh, very volatile and uh, combustible uh, uh, situation. And, uh, you know, that's the advantage of experience, unfortunately, uh, something that each time they're trying something else. For example, just for our viewers to understand, they anticipated that Hamas will try to do and the Northern Branch will try to do things like that. So, first of all, they, Israel asked uh, Egypt and uh, the Emirates and Morocco and Jordan and the Palestinian Authority to do their best to help her in preventing those attempts, because it was very clear. Then, when things were getting tighter, the police anticipated the fact that uh, pairs on the, on the, uh, in the Al-Aqsa Mosque will try to do something early in the morning. Those prayers, we call them loners, or in, in Arabic, they, they are called the, or the, the, the practice is called the itikaf, which is basically to, to, get, to be alone. But they were basically not alone. They were piling stones and everything, but the police was ready for that. And once they started early in the morning, with dawn, actually, 4 a.m., the police quickly stormed the, the compound and arrested something like almost 500 of them okay, to prevent. And it was very successful in that manner because they didn't need to use a lot of force and they stopped it as it started. Now, as you said, during the days that followed, Hamas was pouring oil, the outlawed, the northern branch, all of them tried, you know, again and again. And in some point, Israel was um, condemned you know, because things went a little bit out of control, was condemned by Jordan, but by Arab, other Arab countries, while they knew very well, and they still know, and we know that they know that Israel was not the one to be blamed, but, you know, most of the blame was on the, on the other side, because they were really moderate about it. Nevertheless, I think it's always a, a, an interplay between, you know, the crazy people or the crazy minorities uh, that are running the show, both from the Muslim side. And we must say many of the prayers on that mountain don't want those radical muhabitun, muhabitat, and rioters to, you know, to, to, to damage their willing just to prayer and to practice uh, Ramadan as they believe, you know, in calm and everything. And the same from the Jewish side. I mean, when you have those people who are 
you know, purists, and, and, and they're just not willing to, to wait a little bit with all those practices, and let alone not to do something which is illegal as sacrificing or praying on the mountain. For now, it looks, I think, better. It looks like the Israeli policy this time was successful, but, you know, it can change in one day, in a snap. Yeah. So... In regard to what you said, we're actually coming up to a closing. What do you think the future will be? I mean, do you think that there is going to be a solution to the tension between the WAC, who is Jordanian, to the Palestinians and to, you know, to Israel? I think what should be done is that, to, that, that responsibility should be taken out of the hand or the, the uh, I would say, the soul responsibility, the exclusive responsibility should be taken out from the hands of the Jordanian, although it will have a political cost, a diplomatic cost, because, you know, the Jordanian would not like to share it with other countries. And at least to establish a multinational sort of force or Vatican, I would say Vatican guards, as the Swiss guards in, in the Vatican, that will make sure that the, the peaceful maintain and and to make it in a way that they would you know that they would not be able to to say yes it is real fault it's a no to make it in a way that they would say everything was calm until those muslims were trying to ignite the, the things to, to throw stones on the wailing wall you know we should say that the temple mountain is of course above the wailing wall it's above the parts of nets and all kinds of things they can really disturb the They, they're praying there either by stones or rocks is the, 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 uh, the more precise word, or by firecrackers, which is a new weapons they adopted, which caused already several fires on the mountain of trees and even inside of the mosque. And I think such a multiple force might prevent exploitation of, of, of that argument of an oxide in danger. Well. Let's hope for better days and for a more responsible leadership. <laughs> <laughs> and I really want to thank you, Aurel, for joining us today and telling thank us a little more, shedding more light on what's happening in Temple Mount. Thank you very much, Kobe. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.